Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we mull over issues to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories including US speed limit increases caused 33,000 deaths in 20 years. We road test the just-launched Kia Picanto, a new microcar that comes into a fairly stagnant segment of the market. At the other end of the spectrum, we road test the $160,000-plus Lexus that reminds us of the old days at the Bathurst races. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories including the CIA leaves explosives on a school bus after a training exercise. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interview, road test and quirky news by going to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to start the program, let's have the news. Reservations for Tesla's recently unveiled Model 3 are now approaching 400,000. Now Tesla needs to figure out how to make and deliver those cars on time and on budget. Many of the Model 3 orders won't be fulfilled until 2019 or even into 2020. To get 400,000 cars made and delivered on time, Tesla will have to change the way it makes its vehicles. Tesla has only delivered a little over 100,000 cars in total over its lifetime. The company will likely have to expand production at its California factory more quickly than expected, and it will have to start producing a great number of batteries at its massive battery factory still under construction in Nevada. To make a reservation for a Model 3 car, Tesla customers only had to put down a fully refundable deposit of $1,000. If all 400,000 reservation holders end up buying Model 3 cars, Tesla would have booked $14 billion in orders. That's an unprecedented sum, not just in the auto industry, but for the launch of a product in general. A new study by the American Insurance Institute for Highway Safety shows that increases in speed limits over two decades have cost almost 33,000 lives in the U.S. In 2013 alone, the increases resulted in 1,900 additional deaths, essentially cancelling out the number of lives saved by frontal airbags in that year. Maximum speed limits are set by the states. But in 1973, Congress required that states adopt 55 miles per hour maximum speed limit, and in 1987, Congress relaxed the restriction, once again allowing states to increase speed limits to 65 miles per hour on rural interstates. 33,000 extra deaths is likely to be an understatement. The analysis considered only rural interstates, but many states also increased speed limits on urban interstates. Six states in the U.S. have 80 miles per hour limits, and drivers in Texas can legally drive at 85 miles per hour on some roads. For some time, the industry has been aware of problems with airbags from the major manufacturer, Takata, which have been fitted to many new cars. The airbags have been linked to over 100 injuries and 11 deaths. Worldwide, 50 million Takata airbags have been recalled to date. But now the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is saying that there may be a further 85 million airbags that will need to be recalled. 
Takata is already facing up to $3.5 billion in fines and other expenses. The problem with the airbags is that they use ammonium nitrate to inflate during collisions. Unfortunately, ammonium nitrate can easily become destabilized with explosive results. Many people are concerned that on public transport your personal privacy may be compromised. When you ride on buses or trains in many parts of the United States, what you say could be recorded. Get on a New Jersey Transit light rail train and you might notice an inconspicuous sign that says video and audio systems in use. New Jersey Transit insists that security and safety are exactly why it's installing audio and video recorders on light rail trains around the state. Maryland Transit Administration police say audio recordings can potentially reveal information that video doesn't, including the names or nicknames of people involved in an incident. When the car industry was put under immense pressure during the recent global financial crisis, carmakers pulled back sharply on aggressive leasing deals and other financial incentives that had artificially increased their sales for years. But now, with carmakers under pressure to maintain last year's record numbers, they are once again turning to the same tactics that got them into trouble a decade ago. Vehicle makers are offering increasing discounts on economy cars and luxury models alike, relying more on sales to fleets like rental car companies and bloating dealers' inventories. More and more car loans are being stretched out over longer periods of time. The recession brought a number of large car makers to their knees and they had to be bailed out by the American government. Car companies have realised that as technology develops, they have to do more than just sell cars. They must move into the mobility sector, giving customers a full range of options. Jaguar Land Rover has recently launched InMotion, a new technology business that builds smartphone applications and on-demand services. The new startup will soon begin real-world testing of a number of different services such as car sharing and car ownership systems across North America, Europe and Asia. And in the States, the BMW Group has announced the launch of its Reach Now free-floating premium car sharing service in Seattle, which will be the first North American deployment of the scheme that is already successfully operating in several European cities. In Germany, the land of Porsches, BMW, Mercedes and Audis, an American sports car has achieved sales of the highest number of sports cars sold in the month of March. The sixth generation Ford Mustang has proven a hit in Europe since going on sale last summer. And it's not just in Germany where the Mustang is selling well. In the United Kingdom, sales are on track to more than double Ford's original estimate of 1,800 units, for the car's first full year on the market. And in Australia too, Ford has received as many as 6,000 orders for 2016, well above the predicted 4,500 units. Recently, Overdrive reported that a Ferrari theme park was being planned for China. In past years, we've seen Ferrari license its brand for use on clothing, computers and travel goods. There's even a line of Ferrari clothing stores for babies and toddlers, the latest of which has just opened in Shanghai. Now, according to Bloomberg, there are plans for a fourth Ferrari theme park in North America. 
It's thought the new strategy will seek to further position Ferrari as a luxury brand rather than strictly a luxury sports car brand. And that has been the news. The smallest category of new cars on the Australian market, the Micros, have not been selling well of late. So far this year, the sales are down 31% compared to last year. Not many companies compete in this segment. Only six manufacturers have serious products still on offer. The class leader is the Mitsubishi Mirage, followed by the Nissan Micra, the Fiat 500, the Suzuki Solerio and the Holden Spark. A number of cars have tried and failed, including the Volkswagen Up, which was impressive with some good technology, including automatic emergency braking. But alas, it fell by the wayside. Most of the cars in this category seem to have stood still as far as development goes, or at least not kept pace with the developments and refinements that all other segments seem to be making. The Hyundai i10, which is sold overseas, is apparently a good car that would fit into this market segment, but the cost to get it from the Turkey plant to Australia made it unviable. But things are about to change. Holden has released its new Spark to very positive reviews. We will be driving it soon and we will bring you a full road test. The other change is that Kia has launched its Picanto. This very small car has been on sale for nearly five years in Europe, but Kia has now got it into our market. Price is very important in microcars. The Picanto will be $14,990 drive away. That is not bargain basement price, but it does come standard with an automatic gearbox. Does this car represent real progress in the market? Paul Morell from practicalmotoring.com.au and I were at the launch and he joins us on the line now. Paul, lovely to talk to you. And you, David. Let's talk about the basics of the car, then we'll touch on the market situation. Only one model, what's the engine that comes with it? The engine, David, is a 1.25 litre four-cylinder, and some of the cars in this category have a three-cylinder motor, as you'd be well aware. I think it's called the, the Kia Kappa engine range. It's a really nice little engine. The gearbox, it, does that have its limitations? Uh, it's an interesting one. Um, Certainly the Mirage and the, and the Spark both use a constant velocity transmission, the CVT, whereas the Picanto sort of has a, a more traditional four-speed auto. Now, these days, four-speed autos, we tend to look down our noses on them because we're looking at five speeds and six speeds and seven speeds and eight speeds and now nine speeds. Four-speed is, is at the very bottom of the range, and in some ways, I guess that reflects the age of the model. And as you said in your introduction, this car's been on sale overseas now for five years, so it is in the sort of final stages of its model life, and that's one example of that is the fact it has a four-speed gearbox, four-speed auto gearbox. Now, when we were driving it on the open road, Look, it wasn't a problem. It, it changed up and down. It performed perfectly well. But sitting on 110 k's an hour, which some people would argue was probably not this car's comfort zone, but sitting on 110 k's an hour, you sort of were sitting there going, oh, please change up into a into that non-existent fifth gear. Fuel economy, it 5.6 litres, not class leading, but not too bad. No, no, again, it's, it's probably representative or emblematic of its age. 5.6 is, you know, you wouldn't complain about 5.6, but I think, in this category, small small town cars, you have every reason to expect it to be closer to 5 than 5.6. So 
So it's acceptable but not great. One of the things you get in a small car is a fairly small boot and this has only uh, 200 litres with the back seats up. I think you'll rarely be used for a family car so maybe you can fold the back seats down and have 600 litres which is quite reasonable but with all seats up it is a, a little bit confined in space. The other thing is 14 inch steel wheels. Do they look a little dinky? No, surprisingly, well, it's, it's, there are two ways to look at it. Because the wheel arches themselves are quite tightly created around the wheels, the 14-inch wheels don't look out of place. Quite often what happens when you get a 14-inch wheel or a smallish wheel on a car, the designers have, uh, have made the wheel arches wider in order to accommodate bigger wheels. So you might want to put optional 16-inch wheels on or 18-inch wheels or you know 22-inch wheels if you're, where you're capped backwards and, and listen to hip-hop. But in this particular case, the car has been designed to, to match the wheels so they don't look out of place. As always, Paul, you inform us greatly with your wisdom and your reflections. Thank you once again for your input. Thank you, David. Lovely to talk to you as always. And that's Paul Morell from practicalmotoring.com.au talking about the micro-segment of the market and the new player, the Kia Picanto. And we have a longer interview with Paul on our website at drivenmedia.com.au where we talk more about where the Kia Picanto is part of the revitalisation of the micro-segment of the Australian market. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. In 1967, a Ford Falcon won the annual Bathurst Touring Car Race. It was the first V8 to win the long-distance event. While the next two races were won by the two-door Holden Commodore Coupe, Ford bounced back with the GTHO in 1971. Ford also went with a two-door coupe in 1973 and 74, but the 1967 race signalled the emergence of powerful four-door sedans built in Australia that would come to dominate the Bathurst 1000 and ultimately lead to the current V8 Supercar Championship. It has been a long time since Holden and Ford produced coupes in Australia, but the Commodore and the Falcon still have powerful four-door variants. Now, luxury car makers also produce four-door rocket ships. Think of Mercedes AMG models, BMW M cars, and any Audi with the RS designation. Recently, I took a Lexus GSF to a presentation I had to give. Its power, looks, and potential performance surprised those who attended. Our motoring journalist friend, Alan Zervis from gaycarboys.com.au, has also driven a car, and he joins us to talk about what it's like and how it fits into the market. Alan, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome, David. Now, we're talking here a fair amount of horsepower. We are, yeah. It's, uh, and it's a stunning car. It's amazing to think that something with 351 kilowatts can be so big and so agile. 351 kilowatts. Back in 1967, the first Falcon V8, the Wynn Bathurst, had 168 and, and by the way, this is not uh, big technology with turbocharging. It's a normally aspirated 5-litre V8, which is pretty well what the old Falcon was anyway. There's a lot to be said for a, a car that produces 350-odd kilowatts 
out of five litres. I imagine what it would do with a supercharger or a turbo. Now, the thing about the GSF Lexus that I had was that the colour, the orange colour, really turned heads. Were you impressed by it? I loved it. I loved it. It's a little bit retro, and in fact, the RCF that I had was exactly the same colour. It's not metallic, which I quite like. I'm not all that fussed on metallic paint. And um, people did look, I mean, they can hear it as well, but people did look and uh, they commented on the colour. It is a bit retro. I thought back to the 70s and plum dinger purple with the Tirana. That's right. Candy apple green, perhaps not quite that strong, but certainly the Lexus had, it was a very strong, distinctive colour. Absolutely, and I think that a car like that needs a strong, distinctive colour. It needs to be that orange. The Lexus at the front has a very strong front nose, including those little running lights under the main headlights that look like a Nike swish. I remember speaking to one of the Lexus management uh, several years ago, and uh, they made a comment which had never occurred to me before, that there's a lot of L's for Lexus, in that design and it's intentional or so uh, around the windows and the lights also in the bodywork outside the lights uh, and now of course all I can see when I look at a Lexus is L. Recommended retail price? It's around 150000 I think isn't it? And by the time you get on the road it'll be about 162 so you yeah. are paying for the privilege is it plush luxury inside i love the inside I, I i think lexus do a very very nice interior it's uh, beautifully finished very thoughtfully conceived though i have commented before that i'm not terribly impressed with the input for the infotainment system uh, some lexuses have a a joystick and some have a, uh, a like a mouse pad both of them are too sensitive in my view and in our extended interview with Alan on our website at drivenmedia.com.au, you can hear his story of how he was taken around a racetrack in this hot Lexus, driven by none other than Australian Formula One champion Alan Jones. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And it's time once again to end the program with some quirky news. And on the line is Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. And Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. G'day, Brian. Our six-time Olympic gold medalist in cycling is going to race a Nissan-powered car at Le Mans for the FIA World Endurance Championship. Chris Hoy is being given the chance to pedal his way to success. Gentlemen, is this a wise choice of driver for such a race? Yes, it's it's he's an interesting concept because uh, I I think he'd be more used to having um, a team around him, and I just wonder how he'd go whether he sort of expects one of his teammates to come racing up beside him and hand him drink bottles through the window. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think he's he's really he's really cranked up his cycling if he can pedal for that long now. Well, maybe they're going to change it into an environmentally acceptable race and do it on a bike. Yeah, like a toy pedal car style. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, or Flintstone style. Flintstone, or even historic section with penny farthings. Race rickshaws. But interesting, it'll be interesting to see if his uh, reflexes on a bicycle, and and I think average speeds of some of his races in his day were probably in the order of uh, 40 kilometres an hour or 50 kilometres an hour. Uh, He'll be driving at uh, four or five times that speed, and I I just wonder uh, if his um, reflexes will be up to the task. Well, if someone gets beside him, will he try and elbow him out of the way? Or, yeah, I guess he, he would know about drifting, like drafting other vehicles, uh, getting close and, um, you know, having them tow him up the hills and down the hills. Not many hills in Le Mans. He may have to shove the old bit of uh, brown paper down his front as he, as he goes down the hill to keep himself warm. <laughs> I wonder how he'll cope with less gears. Oh, of course, yes. Fewer yes. gears on a, a race car. He won't, um, he won't have to sort of lean across to, you know, fiddle with the... The gear shift lever. Yeah, they've only got six gears, the class he's racing. He's in the, yeah. the LMP3, which is sort of the, the third tier. So he uh, hasn't quite made it to the, the, the top level. But uh, top. he's not doing bad. He's 40 years old. Pretty pretty impressive that he's both good enough and fit enough to compete well, in a 24-hour race. Well, the fitness is interesting, isn't it, Errol? Because um, motor racing drivers, are, are very they're like athletes, aren't they? And in many ways, I wonder whether they have many of the same attributes in terms of their ability to, to perform at a high level. Well, he might have a good, be good with a strong neck because he's on a bike looking up. And so he's having to hold his head up because the thing that a lot of race drivers get is immense G-forces. And, of course, that pushes your head side to side. And you really need very strong neck muscles. But you've also got to have a body that can cope with two or three G. Mm. Mm. And, and they lose something like two litres of water or something in a race. Well, he, he will need like someone to come drive up next yeah. to him and pass him yeah. bottles. The problem is when he's finished with it, he'll throw it out, the bottle. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and when he gets to the feed station, you know, just driving out and grabbing one of those sort of uh, musette bags from the side of the road at 200 kilometres an hour. (laughs) Very spectacular. Uh, The other thing, though, is uh, what he'll have to get used to is slow pit stops. I've seen those great riders and things like the Tour de France swipe bikes. Oh, yes, Mm. or or a Mm. wheel where someone puts the the wheel on in, in seconds and they're back on the bike and pushed along to start again. I think in, in Le Mans terms, they actually say you have to stop for a fixed amount of time, so they've removed this immense pressure on getting a driver in and out of the car seat. Mm. Brian, a story. It's important to keep people safe, particularly school kiddies, but uh, the CIA went a little too far when they ran a, a test uh, to plant explosives in a school and in a school bus uh, to run a, a test for... Uh, sniffer dogs to find the explosive training material and they use real explosives they uh, uh in order to to train most uh, realistically they use some real explosives they don't use detonators but they they put explosives into a school bus in the engine bay and had uh, sniffer dogs um, find it this is in Ludon county in tennessee in the states the dog found the material but some of the material in the in the um, engine bay fell down deeper and actually stayed in the school bus. And so one of the school bus drivers 
subsequently found the explosive material two days later so that the school buses the school bus in question had done eight trips had traveled about 300 kilometers carrying students attending rock ridge high school and buffalo trail elementary school they've got great names haven't they and pine brook elementary and uh, finally the cia uh, removed the explosive material but said no one was in any danger. Unless they found it and then detonated it. Yes. Mm. School kids being what they are. So this bus had even more dogs than usual chasing it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's how they found it, that the, you know, the school bus went past and all the explosive sniffer dogs sort of went crazy, started chasing it. Shouldn't it be like a medical operation where they actually count the number of swabs that go in? That's exactly right, you would think. Let's be certain about the explosive materials that we're retrieving. Have you got it, Dave? No, I thought you had it, Ken. <laughs> I could have sworn I had, yeah, a set of pliers that I left behind as yeah, well. Yeah, it might be in my other pants, you know. What are other uses for the, the bus... You know, you could find unwanted things left behind. I think... Chewing gum. Or chewing gum. Or a kinky sex party, you might find chains and shaving gear. Or a bucks night, you might find chains and shaving gear. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who hasn't left something on the bus, David? Uh, Yeah. Just happened to be explosive this time. Yes. (laughs) Of course, if you're a Gideon, you'd want to leave your Bible there anyway. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Politicians, there'd be brown paper bags. Yeah, the, there's things that might get left after the bus has been used for other things. Well, like, yeah, certainly there'd be a lot of principles left up the back after the politicians have finished. <laughs> uh, now, Errol, you have a story. Well, Dave, train overcrowding can be stressful, but when it gets to the levels on uh, Mumbai's suburban network in India, it's outright deadly. For every one of the past three years, 200 or more people have died of heart attacks on the train system. Uh, This is not surprising when the trains can be so overcrowded. They actually have a term called super dense crush load, where there can be up to 16 people crammed into a square meter of coach. Now, that doesn't seem physically possible to me, but I'm assuming that maybe includes those that are sitting on the roof. Uh, A survey a few years ago found that during peak hour, a 12-car train can have over 5,500 people on it, which is almost 60% more than its maximum official capacity. It's just scary, isn't it? And you can hear Brian, Errol and my discussion on that subject, as well as the story from Lancashire of the lady who fell over on the road, but the council deemed that it wasn't their fault because the pothole was not deep enough. Go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Paul Morell, Alan Zervis and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the features, road tests and quirky news segments on our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. 
I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>